This episode was recorded during the 2023 WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. Without the labor of writers and actors, this film wouldn't exist. We stand in solidarity with those striking. Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And today is an exciting day. So exciting. I think we've been preparing for this moment our whole lives. Truly. If one can say that I've ever prepared for anything in my life, it is for this. It is true. Yes. <laughs> we've alluded to it. We've talked about it. We've danced around it a little bit. But today is the day that we are covering Queen of the Damned. Yes. You know, we kind of danced back and forth about what we were going to cover for this particular episode over and over again. We were thinking really hard about it. We were talking about, you know, movies to do in 2001 because of the fact that this is going to come out on the anniversary of September the 11th. And then we thought, you know what? You know what the world needs? Fun fun times let's talk about something that is totally vapid (laughs) completely brainless no not really there's a lot of brain stuff that we're going to talk about in this episode (laughs) i guess surface level it's pretty like lestat's a himbo level oh yeah 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 lestat is our favorite himbo (laughs) (laughs) yes next to ken i don't know he might have some competition there that's true that's favorite vampire himbo that's true yep because we were talking about this while we were watching jason from true blood doesn't become a vampire so right he's a vampire adjacent himbo yeah almost vampire almost panther. yeah Never stops being a himbo, though. Yeah, lots of close calls with the uh, supernatural creatures. Always himbo. (laughs) That's a zodiac sign. Himbo. Himbo. Yeah, I think it's right. (laughs) I'm so glad that we're talking about Queen of the Damned finally, though, because this is going to be, this is actually our first, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't think we did interview with a vampire. No, we we haven't. No, this is our first Anne Rice property that we're actually diving into. God bless. Yeah. God bless Anne Rice. We talk about Anne Rice a lot, but we've not done... Because, I mean, there aren't that many adaptations of Anne Rice stuff. For the longest time, it was just Interview with a Vampire and Queen of the Damned, and people had varying feelings about what counted in terms of those two. And there were a lot over the years of kind of hits and misses of this company acquiring the rights and then just letting them run out and then her pulling back the rights and Anne Rice saying, you know, I don't want to do anything with my horror properties anymore and then backing out of that. (laughs) And um, the kind of last thing that then happened is before her death, Anne Rice and her son Christopher gave AMC the rights to adapt her work. And that's why we're seeing Interview with a Vampire. Season one is out. And just this week, actually, the news broke that AMC was able to comply with and reach an agreement with SAG-AFTRA to start production on season two of Interview with a Vampire, even with the ongoing writers and actors strike. And then we also have The Witching Hour, which I'm so excited about because that was we've never gotten Mayfair Witches in any sort of film or television version. That's also an AMC property. I don't know what the situation with that is with another season. Admittedly, I haven't watched the whole thing of either of them yet. Part of that is I'm kind of waiting till we can cover it for podcast times. And I was waiting for the physical media releases, which are happening uh, in October. But they could probably, well, I mean, there are two other books in the Mayfair Witches anyway, and of Strictly Mayfair Witches. And then there's a lot of crossover later on. Yeah. And for as prolific a writer as Anne Rice was, she passed away in 2021, in December of 2021. And for a prolific writer such as herself, writing not only vampire novels, because that was like probably the thing that she's most famous for. Mm -hmm. She also wrote erotica. She wrote books that had nothing to do with vampires. She wrote the Mayfair Witches series. She wrote crossovers. She wrote books about angels. Super prolific writer. But 
we don't get a lot of coverage when it comes to other types of media, movies, television shows from her. And part of that is she was very, very careful with the rights to her books and adaptations. So, yeah. And I think it's worth acknowledging. And she did kind of, again, she she is a person and I give her credit. Some people have criticized her for kind of waffling back and forth but I actually give her a lot of credit for being willing to reconsider things throughout her life you know leaving horror coming back to horror etc but at the start of her career she was pretty kind of notoriously against fan fiction Mm -hmm. and I know toward the end of her life and her career she changed her mind about that as well but that just speaks to that protectiveness Mm -hmm. you know as somebody who loves fan fiction and exists in the fan fiction world. I had really mixed feelings about her statements about it for years. But I also understand as a creator where she was coming from in terms of that protectiveness of these characters. I mean, she has said multiple times in interviews that the characters that she's writing are people that she loves. Yeah. So she's either adapting features of people that she really knows and kind of imbuing these characters with those characteristics And so she's naturally protective of them, almost like they're real people, like they really exist to her. And I mean, who knows? Maybe the story in an interview with the vampire is true. And, you know. Right. (laughs) I think Daniel, the the interviewer, really existed. Yeah. Just just kidding. (laughs) But just a quick background. Queen of the Dam came out in 2002. So this is a super perfect slice of... 2002 incredible new metal cheese yes it is starring Aaliyah. this was in her last role before she unfortunately passed away in a plane accident Stuart townsend who plays lestat marguerite moreau who plays jesse who's part of the telemasca uh, vincent perez as marius paul mcgann as david talbot lena olin as maharet and then we have a huge cast of characters outside of that who play ancients that basically get no screen time and no explanation so i'm not even gonna (laughs) read out all of their credits because the cast is actually pretty big in this movie so yeah it's about lestat who wakes up after somehow being asleep for centuries even though he was just alive (laughs) in the 70s it's okay um, he wakes up after a really long time and becomes a part of a new metal band and chaos ensues. <laughs> That's literally the entire thing. <laughs> so you should know if you're coming from the books that this movie takes elements from the Vampire Lestat as well as Queen of the Damned, but also cuts a lot out. And I, I have a lot to say about like the way those choices are made and whether they're good or bad. It's a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, mm-hmm. you have to recognize anytime you're adapting a work into film that things have to change, they have to adapt, things have to be cut, other things have to be expanded. But I think this particular movie is a really interesting test case for maybe how not to do that. Yeah, and there's a certain aspect where you have to kind of advance a story if it was written in the past to make it relevant to Mm -hmm. current times, or at least try to. Interview with the Vampire is a good example of that because it was actually written in the late 70s. Yeah. The movie wasn't released until 1994. And we were able to get it into 1994 without too much friction, I guess you can say. But this movie takes a book that was written in the 80s and pulls it into 2002, which is not quite as graceful, but similar. Yeah, and it's not necessarily a bad thing Mm -hmm. in that regard. You know, time shifting is one of the things that bothers me the least in terms of the adaptation. A lot of people were initially very upset with the Interview with the Vampire series because it also time shifts and does a lot of changes that I had read that Anne Rice was already kind of thinking about in terms of this was a book she wrote in the 70s in the South about the South, you know, and this is a modern television show that deals with the past. How do we, you know, change things to be more respectful in our telling of the past, especially if you're talking about Louisiana of the Mm -hmm. past. So those changes were made and I think were done very gracefully and the story doesn't suffer for it. And actually in this one, I get why they time shifted it, because if you're talking about an 80s rock star, you know, the image that you get 
if you're reading the book when it comes out, you know, or you're sort of putting yourself in that time as like a hair metal star or a kind of Alice Cooper-esque like horror rock star of the past. But I think in 2002, like people have kind of come around to that a little more now where it's like people recognize that 80s metal is, you know, was of a certain time and was maybe not as uncool as we viewed it then. But I can tell you that in 2002, hair metal, 80s-esque metal, even glam rock was patently uncool. Right. So to make this movie appeal to young people, like especially like young metal fans and sort of new goths, because goth, like in terms of look and aesthetic, was changing a lot in the 2000s as well from sort of the 90s goth and the 80s goth that it came from, etc., They had to make this time shift. Mm -hmm. And that part of it, I think, is okay. And it actually does kind of work aesthetically. Yeah. I mean, I loved this movie when I saw it the first time. I was like 13 or 14. I watched it with my best friend. And her mom actually showed it to us because she was obsessed with Stuart Townsend at the Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And this appealed 100% to me. This was like specifically the movie that was made for me. Yeah. Hot vampires, ambiguousness, <laughs> like gay, straight, who knows? They're, it's a vampire. The clothing, the fashion, I was like, man, I wish I looked like that. Man, I wish I could dress like that. You know, I was listening to Corn. I was listening to mm-hmm. Disturbed. Jonathan Davis actually did a lot of the music production in this movie and, and wrote a lot of the music. So I'm like, this is exactly specifically targeted to me and people who, you know, enjoyed the same things I did. And I loved it. I didn't care that we didn't get a lot of story. We didn't get a lot of background. (laughs) We don't have a lot of explanation for so many of the characters. I didn't care that it didn't butt right up against Interview with the Vampire in a perfect puzzle piece. You know, I didn't care about any of those things because the movie just looked so cool and it sounded cool, too. Aesthetically, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just it's a dream. It's such a time capsule in a very cool way. It kind of reminds me of like, the same reason why like I can still like feelings about Joss Whedon aside like watch Buffy and oh yeah get, like very warm fuzzies not just about the characters but just the look of it like takes me back to that time this movie does the same thing now that you mentioned Buffy I was thinking about that earlier about like early 2000s vampire stuff I really wish that Anthony Stewart had had been David oh god that would have been so good just chef's kiss yeah. that would have been the perfect casting yeah I get where it's coming from. I loved it so much. It looks so great. Not only just in the way that we're filming things, you know, that like strange green filter that we always have on the stat to make him look like he's covered in moss almost. (laughs) Like, I, I I don't even know how else to explain it, but that's really what it looks like. And the costuming is just fantastic. Oh, yeah. I love the costumes in this. The score is great. Even if you don't like corn, it fits into the movie so well. The background music is good. Yeah. The artists that they chose to feature in the movie. So Tricky, which I love Tricky. Yep. The Deftones, which we were just talking about how there's like a whole group of humans now that can drink and vote that probably were conceived to <laughs> change in the House of Flies. <laughs> specifically because of this movie yeah the kidney thieves huge at that time so it just like hit every beat you know that it was supposed to and to be fair while mainstream it was not like mainstream appeal anyways was not it was catering to those people who specifically were still reading interview with the vampire Mm -hmm. because i was reading interview with the vampire then you know yeah and i was the type of person who would love this movie And I think that they kind of bullseyed it. Yeah. For at least the visual of the movie. Visually, definitely, story-wise. E. (laughs) Huge missteps. Yeah, I'm going to say huge missteps, story-wise, for fans of the books. Well, it skipped an entire novel. It did. It did. Chronologically, in the books themselves, we have Interview with the Vampire, Mm -hmm. The Vampire Lestat, and then Queen of the Damned. Right. This movie skips from assuming that you know everything that happened in Interview with the Vampire, which it doesn't mention Louis at all. Right. Which is not accurate to the book. Right. And skipping all of the character development that you have for Lestat in The Vampire Lestat. Yeah. And then going directly to Queen of the Damned, 
which there's a whole bunch of extra characters. There's so much extra story and character motivation and good things and bad things that happen to Lestat and the vampire Lestat that we don't get any idea about in Queen of the Dam. So we're just kind of like fast forwarded through that. It's like, eh, don't worry about that. Marius made him, even though that's not real. And Lestat's a brat. Here you go. Yeah. Yeah. And and then he spit out in 2002 as a rock star. Yeah. The like challenge of all of this is, you know, when you're making a movie based on not just a book, but like many, many books at this point is like, how do you both serve the readers of the books and sort of honor their experience, but also not make it so confusing that new folks like can the story is accessible to new mm-hmm. folks who haven't read the books who might like the movie and then go read the books that kind of a thing and i feel like this movie failed on both fronts mm-hmm. unfortunately can't when, make everybody happy you can't even make one no, person happy no this, you know? this in in terms of story i feel like this movie made no one happy right because for new folks it's really hard to put myself in that position because this movie came out right before Anne rice quit writing horror, which is an important point that I want to get back to later. So that means that we were nearly all the way up to Blood Canticle, which was allegedly supposedly going to be her last horror book, which combined the Mayfair Witches and the Vampire Chronicles. They were already moving in that direction. There were a couple of little crossover books, but it like firmed up. It was the book where Lestat meets Rowan Mayfair. And like, whatever you think about, especially the new Tales of the Vampires, some of those books are better than the others. She provided so much backstory, and they took like none of it, but yet threw in some of the characters and didn't even name them. And so like, I'm a huge fan of Pandora. That's actually one of my favorites of the Vampire Chronicle books that are sort of like beyond the first four. I love Pandora's story. Part of it is because it's like in the classical era, you know. But they don't tell you that that's Pandora in the movie. Like, you're just supposed to know that this person who is seriously in the movie for like 0.2 seconds... She's in two scenes and she dies, which isn't accurate, that that's Pandora, for example. There are all these vampires in there that you're supposed to just kind of know who they are. But even as a fan, I was kind of like, wait, that's that's that person? Armand, cough, cough. Oh, my God. Armand. (laughs) Yeah. What? (laughs) Let's make Armand the whitest looking dude possible. Right? After Antonio Banderas, what the hell? Yeah. Yeah. Confusing. But I think that that was the tricky part with choosing to tell this story for an Anne Rice story. Like, I get the appeal of, like, Lestat, the rock star. Like, I think that's why they wanted to do this one. Warner Brothers had the rights to her, both Vampire Chronicles and the Mayfair Witches, and they were running out. So they had made Interview in 94, and I don't know if it was a 10-year term or what the terms were, but they were like, oh, crap. We're about to lose the rights to these still hugely popular properties. Guess we better make a movie. And that's how this movie was rushed into production. But like, I don't know that this was the right one. Yeah. There was a rumor for many years of a Tales of the Body Thief movie. And actually, I think that would have been the better choice. Because that story of all of the sort of early Vampire Chronicle books stands alone the best. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like you can do Tales of the Body Thief because it is so just like kind of Lestat on his own, on his own adventure, not tied into all this lore that you need to know. Yeah. This one is like so lore based that it makes it really hard. So that's always a problem that I've had with Anne Rice's books is that they're very dense when it comes to backstory and lore building. Yeah. Which is a blessing and a curse. Yeah. You know? It makes it really hard to just like tear through one of our books because you're like, <laughs> yeah. oh, my God, we've spent 300 years with this person, you know, literally mm-hmm. like 300 years. Yeah. So it's hard to just tear through her books, but that you come to love those characters so much more for all of that work and, and lush, you know, background yeah. that you get for these books and kind of jamming us into like the bookend of because Queen of the Damned is like post, you know, big rock star Lestat concert yeah. and the fallout. 
But we had all of the vampire Lestat to introduce Pandora and Marius and Maharet and Akasha and Ankle and all of these other people and kind of get us to this point that we're at when we start in Queen of the Damned where Lestat is waking up, which, you know, whatever, it's not yeah. accurate, but getting in touch with Akasha and Ankle, how he actually came into knowing them and then really introducing these other back characters who could give you such a lush background in this film, but we didn't have the benefit of even knowing who the hell they are Yeah, in another movie. So kind of skipping over that and getting him to this like new metal rock star point is funny and great in theory. Right. But in practice, it made it very disjointed. Yeah. And how are you supposed to care about these vampire ancients when all you see them as is cannon fodder, basically, mm-hmm. for Akasha? Now, if we had made a movie where we were not concerned about the ancients at all. And, exactly. And Jesse is basically just a part of the Talamasca, no connection to Maharet or the ancients or anything like that. And you only had Lestat and Akasha and Marius, for whatever reason, being the, the one who makes Lestat. <laughs> then I think it could have been a better movie with less like fluff, you know, stuff that we can cut out of it. I think we could have made a more streamlined movie, but the writers of the film got kind of caught up in the lore themselves. And they're like, oh, no, we have to have all these characters. And at the end of the day, it probably would have been better if they didn't. It's funny watching it now, because watching it then, I kind of had that experience because I had read everything that was out up to that point. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, wow, okay. Like, I'm glad I know what's supposed to happen here because I feel like I would be lost if I didn't. But I'm also disappointed because there are characters here that aren't named. There are also characters that are missing. So watching it now, where I have read all of the new stuff as well, Anne Rice has returned to horror from Prince Lestat on. (laughs) Now I'm just like, oh, my God, there's so much backstory here that they didn't or couldn't get into I think it's worth pointing out that in Prince Lestat, which was her first vampire book, it was her return to the Vampire Chronicles, which is actually really good, by the way. I know a lot of people were kind of like turned off by her last couple of horror books because they weren't as great. But I like Prince Lestat, just saying. There is actually an appendix with a glossary of all of the characters. Oh, wow. Because there are so freaking many. Oh, man. I bet. <laughs> so that just speaks to the challenge of what we're dealing with here in storytelling. And I found that really helpful because even though I've read every single damn one of them, there were several like vampires. I'm like, wait, who is this? Who is this? <laughs> when I saw this movie, I had read Interview the Vampire. I had never made it past that. So just keep in mind, like, for a 14 year old this movie is accessible for somebody who really is invested because you know keep in mind Interview with the Vampire came out in the late 70s and then Vampire Lestat and Queen of the Damned came out in the 80s and she was still publishing books at this point like several more had come out since then so if you are like a true diehard fan this would probably have been an extremely disappointing film yeah Because you would have had all of these hopes and dreams going into the movie and then like, oh, they killed off my favorite character who didn't actually die in the books and didn't even really name her. This sucks, you know? Yeah, that was definitely my experience of it is I was like, oh, this looks cool, but uh, yeah, you know, the story is pretty rough. The story is pretty rough. But I was like, but damn, if Aaliyah doesn't look amazing in this. Oh, my God. She really does. And one of the things that you mentioned before is at this point in time, Anne Rice was really going through a crisis in her life. Yeah. 2002, her husband died, Mm -hmm. Stan Rice. This movie came out in 2002. So this movie came out in February. Her husband died after brain cancer. I mean, he was ill in December of 2002. So it had been a very difficult year for her. And he had been ill before that. She didn't like this movie in the first place. Right. I didn't know this, but she had some issues with diabetes. She ended up having some surgery in order to help her with her diabetes. She went back to the church shortly after that. She had disavowed herself from the Catholic Church since she was 18. She went back in 2003 and, you know, really delved into that. And she started writing these books about angels. She was like, I'm done with horror. I'm not doing this anymore. And I just wonder if that's 
kind of part of the reason why she disavowed this movie so hard. Yeah, and why she just pulled back on all the film rights to all of her stuff for so many years. I mean, everybody really thought after this movie, well, number one, we thought after Blood Canticle that we were never going to get another Vampire Chronicles book or Mayfair Witches book. But also after this movie, very specifically, I mean, I think everybody was pretty much like, Welp, we're never getting an Anne Rice movie ever again. Yeah. Which was disappointing and in was why when the news of the AMC acquisition broke, I wanna say that was maybe in twenty nineteen that the news of the acquisition broke. I remember being both excited and also very skeptical. I was like, Oh, I'm so excited. But will we actually ever see anything? Like, okay, they've got the rights, but she and her son had to have, like, final say on everything. And I was like, oh, so they've got the rights. Will anything ever actually get into production? And then the pandemic happened. And then the pandemic (laughs) happened. And I was like, well, we're never getting anything. And then all of a sudden we had casting and trailers and subsequently shows, which was really, really exciting for me as a fan. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I thought that after the success of the 94 interview of the vampire, that that was it, that there was never going to be another retelling of it. And Anne Rice being so protective of her properties is such a blessing and a curse. Like, you know that she's going to be so specific and so involved at that point in time that it's almost like, well, it's like the opposite of Stephen King. Stephen King adaptations are (laughs) kind of like a dime a dozen, you know, because people have access to the rights of those IPs, you know? Will we get another Shining movie? Maybe not because the Stanley Kubrick one is like such a monolith, you know? Yeah. But those adaptations and making copies of those things happen quite frequently. And he's very open to that. Like he has even done things where he will offer up some of his short stories for either free or for very, very cheap licensing fees so that student filmmakers and young filmmakers and early career folks can cut their teeth on making an adaptation using work that is known and like sort of using that name. So yeah, he just plays in the adaptation world so differently than she did. Yeah, it's interesting because to him, it's like, well, it doesn't matter how many times you adapt a thing. It's not going to reduce my original work. Right. And Anne Rice was like, no. Yeah. (laughs) I want them all to be in line. I want to be involved or at least happy with the way that these things are portrayed. Yeah. Like, just as an example, in Interview with the Vampire, she actually did a foreword kind of on the tape, the special edition tape Uh that I used to watch. There was like a little kind of thing at the beginning where she would talk about the making of the movie and she saw Queen of the Dam one time and never watched it again. Yeah. So just to kind of show you how differently she felt about these two movies. Well, even interview was tricky, though, because when they first cast Tom Cruise, she was adamantly against his casting. Oh, yeah. And once she saw his portrayal, really, really warmed up to it and supported that movie. But at first she was like, nope, nope, nope. Yeah, which is hilarious. And that's actually one of the questions I wanted to pose to you. So pop quiz, not really a quiz, just an open-ended <laughs> question. Stuart Townsend as a stat versus Tom Cruise as a stat. The same, better, or worse? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think I'm going to say the same because they each take a slightly different method to channeling that character and neither one is like right or wrong and neither one fully gets it or embodies him but they're both kind of latching on to different things about the character that are true Mm -hmm. neither one of them fully get there for me and that's okay i think that stuart Townsend very specifically got a lot of criticism from people that didn't really know the character. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because this was the norm then later because of Twilight, Mm -hmm. how like brooding and whiny his Lestat was. And I'm like, uh, if you read the character in the book, Lestat is very whiny and very brooding. You know, he gets the title of the brat prince for a reason because he's a total brat. Yeah. 
And he's not necessarily meant to be a likable character is the other thing I think we have to remember. Tom Cruise gets at a little more of the bravado of Lestat, which always leads to his tragic downfall. Mm -hmm. And that is also true of that character. Tom Cruise's Lestat is a little less broody, but he gets at something else with the characters. I would say, honestly, given the scripts that each one had to work with, too, because Stuart Townsend did not have a good script to work with, like, I would kind of put them as even. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I think you're right. I think Tom Cruise gets at, like, sort of the high-level stuff, the impatience, the petulant, you know, uh, Lestat, the aggravated you know, in a good mood, he's sweet and loving and, and patient and kind. But when he's in a bad mood, he's awful. You know, yeah. Lestat, though, uh, Stuart Townsend's Lestat gets more like goth emo, you know, yeah, like uh, living is too hard. So I will nap, you know, <laughs> like that, that kind of like uh, feeling. And then, you know, wanting to take the limelight, wanting to take the yeah. spotlight because Tom Cruise's Lestat is much more careful. He's yes. he's aware they have a fragile position where they're at. They can't show their hand too much. Louis doesn't care. He, you know, cautioned to the wind at certain points because he has a breakdown. Yeah. But Lestat's like, no, we we must be careful. We must be measured in our actions and reactions. And, and why not live lusciously and, and, you know, lavishly? But we can't kill too many people because then they're going to kick us out and we need to stay here. As where in this one, it's like, no, I'm going to completely undo all of these careful workings that I've done because I'm lonely (laughs) and I want my friends to come back. Yeah. Please be my friends again. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think two very different facets of Lestat that are being shown. Oh, yeah, definitely. I do wish, though, that the Queen of the Damned would have addressed the Louis thing a little bit because... Having him asleep for hundreds of years and then like making him wake up and then just automatically being a rock star and letting the the other part is like those people letting him into their band. Yeah. He just wakes up and he's like, yeah, I want to be in your band. They're like, oh, okay, Yeah. (laughs) Cool. 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 I mean, I guess he could promise them like fame and fortune and tours and a manager, you know, who knows? Yeah. I feel like this movie exists not as a sequel to Interview, but as a standalone film. Mm-hmm. And it's never been entirely clear to me what the intent of the filmmakers was, because I know that at one point they did ask Tom Cruise if he would like to reprise the role, and he said no. And I don't know if perhaps that then made them say, okay, then this movie needs to be kind of its own thing like yes it's the same character and it's drawing on the same source material but this is not a sequel to that yeah which we saw back then in that era of filmmaking i feel like now like you know the 2000s were the era of like you know the reboot remake sequel to a remake rather than the franchise we were doing some kind of like wonky things so complicated Um, it was it was pre like retcon requel where uh we're like hey okay so this is a sequel but it takes the first 3.75 movies and cancels this etc etc yeah so but back then we were really kind of in this weird like kind of like we have to just like make everything our own like millennial thing you know right it was a rough time (laughs) what a time what a time right I think some of the things that we can talk about in this one is some questionable motives. And I know that we've talked about this a little bit in an interview with the vampire when we've covered it on other podcasts, but I think Queen of the Damned is probably the worst for it, at least in this adaptation. One of the things that's kind of beautiful about Interview with the Vampire is you really get a good sense of what's going on inside of Louis's head and the fact that he cannot figure out what's going on inside of Lestat's head yeah on a moment to moment basis uh-huh. Louis is very much introspective and trying to figure out where Lestat's coming from and not being able to do it yeah as where in this one it's like we can't figure out anybody's motivations no there's so many actions in the movie where you're like this does not make sense why would you do this thing specifically Jesse, when we're introduced to her saying yep. like hey i have these weird dreams about my aunt who gave me up for adoption um yeah i don't know what that's all about 
also I'm a part of this like secret society that like researches paranormal stuff. It's not that big of a deal. And I'm going to throw myself at this vampire. Yeah. Which you would think like day one at spooky Talamasca school that you would get a handbook that says number one rule. Don't try and go into a vampire bar by yourself with no other people. Yeah. Always vampires and pairs. Yes. Always vampires and pairs. And like, don't be the only living person in there. Yeah. Protect yourself. You're part of the Talamasca, like the repository of research that exists for humans on vampires. Right. And you went in there like, oh, I'm just looking for Lestat. No big deal. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. Jesse, come on. And we know that like in the witching hour, very specifically, like that's a huge plot point is like the Talamasca being like, whoa, hey, yo, you got to be careful because uh, there's this thing called Lasher and he will get you. Yeah. You know? Like everybody knows that. It's very, very clear. And I, I don't know if Jesse exists in Queen of the Damned as a character. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Probably dealt with a little bit more delicately than like, I'm just going to roll up into this vampire bar and you know, put my human self out there so I attract all the attention of the vampires Oh yeah, without any help. And she very nearly gets killed. If this was the one time that Lestat was like, I'm not going to go to this vampire bar today that I (laughs) sing about in my song, she would have died. She would have just been murdered. Yeah. (laughs) What the hell? Yeah. To be clear, if you haven't seen this, this is not Fantasia. This is not vampire <laughs> bar where humans and vampires intermingle and it's like dangerous, but it's like agreed upon sexy danger. This is like for vampires only. Uh, agreed upon sexy danger. That's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Fantasia is like legislated. Everybody right. knows that vampires right. exist. This is like a seedy alley bar. Yeah. You know, with only vampires and one human or humans that are everybody knows are about to die. Right. Right. Very different. Yeah. God, Jesse, what are you doing? Yeah. It is interesting, though, like as I've watched it multiple times before, I'm interested in that. Originally, I was like, okay, Jesse just wants to like throw herself, you know, groupie mm-hmm. style at Lestat. And now I'm rewatching it. I'm like, no, she actually doesn't really give a shit about Lestat. She really only wants to use him as a means to an end. And then the ending kind of makes it look like, no, she actually didn't want want to throw herself. So I'm like, oh, I think I'm giving the filmmakers, unfortunately, more credit than they probably should have gotten initially. When I'm like, oh, no, she just wants Lestat so she can get back to her auntie because she's missing her. No, no, it's not that. Well, I feel like the Jesse thing as portrayed in this movie was a direct response to everyone's response to interview with a vampire which is like everybody who read the books knew but like when they put it out on screen everyone's like whoa this is super gay this is so (laughs) gay and I think that they by by really like emphasizing like Jesse's relationship with Lestat and all of that they were like hey no like it's it's straight it's fine you guys it's straight Except it's not because there are several other super gay things in this movie. But I think that they were really trying to be like, look, we know you think that this whole series is about two dudes longing for each other. But actually, there's a chick. It's fine. There are several chicks and they're hot and they all kind of want Lestat, even the super evil queen. So it's fine. It's fine. It's straight. Yeah, uh, 100% straight Lestat with his leather pants and, like, (laughs) see-through shiny shirts. And totally straight Marius. (laughs) And David. Yeah. This is actually a really good segue because it's so funny. So 1994, Interview with the Vampire. 2002 was a much more openly gay time, I will say. Like, culturally, were we where we are now? No. Was it still awful in lots of places? Absolutely. Yeah. But we were definitely talking about it more. 1994 was not so open. Conversely, Interview of the Vampires, gay as hell. We talk about that all the time. Yeah. Interview of the Vampire, specifically gay. Lestat and Louis, super gay. Oh, Lu- yeah. Louis and Armand, gay. Yeah. G- underscore that. <laughs> like, if one thing you need to know about that movie, it's real gay. Yep. However, conversely, this movie is like 
and maybe they were like, hey, new metal people, they're not going to be into it if if it's super gay. Guess what? Incorrect. Because <laughs> yeah, girl, watch that movie. And I would have been like, <laughs> wow. No, it's so funny that we took this like sort of like sexually ambiguous Lestat because, you know, we keep saying gay. Lestat is an equal opportunity seducer. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. He, he's getting with everybody. Yeah. He does get with Akasha. Yep. But he also 100% gets with Louis. Yep. Like, it's a very, like, sexual, romantic, longing love that the two of them share. And then in this movie, it's like, no, not with Marius, not with uh, David, not with anybody else, just Jesse and Akasha. Right. 100% straight. Yeah. Which is so funny and backwards based off of the fact that 94's portrayal of Lestat is gay as hell. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to her credit, like all of Anne Rice's vampires, like none of them are straight. Like they all get with whomever, like Marius, same Mm -hmm. thing. Throughout the Vampire Chronicles, we see him with all different sorts of people. At the core is his sort of love story with Pandora and their kind of on again, off again, weird longing thing. But they also show him to have love for men, for other people as well. So that's like baked into her work. And they just, it really felt like in this one, they were trying to tread very, very carefully. And I don't know if no, I was going to say, I don't know if that's a post 9-11 thing, but actually, I mean, filming principal photography was done for this movie before 9-11 because Aaliyah died in August of 2001. And they were done with all of the photography. Certainly like the George W. Bush era of like, you know, post 2000 election was definitely bringing in sort of a new like weird overarching conservatism Mm -hmm. to america although subculturally we were further along Mm -hmm. so maybe it was just that that a studio like warner brothers felt like you know for a big budget like mass market non-art house movie we can't lean into the gay that's really obviously there (laughs) yeah i was asking juliet because i have actually never made it all the way through queen of the damned i've only ever made it like maybe 30% of the way through the Vampire List app, which I'm embarrassed to admit. (laughs) I own all the books. I just need to, like, actually read them. I was like, David and Marius, like, are there undertones here that David and Marius are gay? And Juliet was like, oh, my God, yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because, like, watching this movie, I always thought that Marius was gay, that, like, Lestat was supposed to be his play thing, because I had forgotten that Marius didn't actually make Lestat. Right. Because he did. Yeah. Yeah. I guess Marius is supposed to be like kind of a mashup of Magnus and Marius. A little bit. Yeah. Well, kind of only in that he made Lestat because Magnus was Magnus was like a weird character. You know, Magnus was supposed to be this. Let's see if I remember him correctly. Very cruel, like kind of old monk. Oh, yeah. So you don't really get, yeah. I think they were just like, oh, Marius. But then Marius sort of took him under his wing. Right, right. So I think they were just like, well, that's confusing. We don't need another character. So sure, Marius made him. Because we already have several throwaway characters. Probably shouldn't put another one in. (laughs) Right, exactly. But yeah, I was like, does this strike you as being like, the homoerotic situation, Juliet was like, yes, duh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it very, very, very clearly is. Like, there's there's definitely some longing on David's part. He is also very obviously terrified of vampires in general, mm-hmm. but, like, really wants to get close to them. But Oh, yeah. You know, hence being a provost of Talamasca. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that gets fleshed out a little more. That's in- good. Subsequent books. What's the name of the Talamasca guy in The Witching Hour? Aaron. Aaron, Aaron Leitner. Yeah. Okay. I I was yeah. like thinking an A name. Hey, at least this time it wasn't like, it definitely starts with a B. It's like, no, it starts with an S. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's Aaron Leitner. <laughs> okay. I really like his portrayal. Like I said, I haven't watched all of The Witching Hour uh, TV series yet, but I really like what they have done with him in that story. The person portraying him was really cool. I really need to get up on the AMC 
stuff. Yeah. Well, Interview with the Vampire is on HBO Max. I don't know if The Witching Hour is. Okay. But they're all going to be out on DVD in October. Yay. Which makes it easier. Some little stuff before I get to kind of the last thing I, I wanted to talk about. Anne Rice's weird dolls get a little bit of a cameo in this movie a couple of times. Yeah. Which I actually read that she auctioned in 2010. That's when she came back to horror. Yep. So she left in like 2003, 2004, whenever. Mm-hmm. Shortly after this movie. And then in 2010, she's like, you know what? I'm done with the Catholic Church. They're backwards. We don't like it. And she auctioned off her doll collection at like Christie's or Sotheby's or some like big auction house. Creepy as hell, though, because she had an apparently very prolific collection. Yes. What the hell? Yeah. What a weird thing. I've always felt like doll collecting is kind of strange. Yeah, I don't I don't get it. It creeps me out. I mean, people who are into it are really into it. And I know that for her, that was like a very big thing was doll collecting. And, you know, it all kind of makes sense when you look at like Claudia in Interview with a Vampire and how she's referred to like by Lestat and Louis as like our little doll and mm-hmm. things like that. So it all kind of ties in. But yeah, it is not my uh, hobby of choice. <laughs> And you see it a couple of times in the movie. They're actually in Maharet's house, which also, why would Maharet collect dolls? Weird. I could speak volumes about Maharet in this movie. It's a bummer because she's such a cool character. And number one, they completely cut out her twin sister, Mikare, from this movie, who's super important. But like the whole interplay and connection between Maharet, Mikare, and Akasha and Enkiel is way more complicated than they alluded to in this movie like it makes a heck of a lot more sense to understand why Maharet drained Akasha in this movie if you know all of that history yeah and also Akasha was supposed to be beheaded but that's neither here nor there (laughs) instead she just got airbrushed black and then she turned into dust yeah it's okay yeah that's fine whatever that's more new metal it is kind of more new metal, yeah. <laughs> I did just want to point out that when Lestat drinks uh, Kasha's blood and then he like freaks out because he's all powerful because her yeah. blood's all powerful and shit, he goes upstairs and Marius chains him to his bed. And I was like, why does Marius just have a bed <laughs> with chains like ready? We know why. Yeah, we all know. We but know it's just Marius. Funny. We we gotcha. It's like it's got a bunch of furs on yep. it and like le- like these legit manacles like attached to this and big fancy stone pillows. fancy pillows. <laughs> There's a canopy, a big fireplace. It's like yeah. Marius. We know what's up, Marius. <laughs> he should have been an interior decorator. He should have been. And you know, Lestat tries to dunk on Marius's like fashion sense at one point. Oh, yeah. He's like, "Oh, he's still dressing in the old styles." It's like, "Shut up. Marius looks good." He does. He looks fine. He does. He looks timeless. Yeah. You know, it doesn't really look old fashioned. It looks like classic, well appointed, probably very expensive or like impossible to actually get anymore. And like, he looks nice. He looks fancy. Yeah. He's a fancy man. He is a fancy man. Well, I think that that scene very specifically, we were laughing because Lestat is wearing an equally fancy but cheap like faux brocade hot topic jacket and marius is wearing like the legit vintage piece yeah. you know like, yeah come on man yeah like listat generally in this movie is walking around with leather pants and no shirt so yeah. don't think you get to talk much about other people's fashion sense <laughs> in this film which will say let me just underscore the costuming in this movie is fantastic it makes me nostalgic for like old hot topic yeah yeah same Instead of like bubblegum, which I'm not trying to say that that there's like there's nothing wrong with that fashion sense. It just my fashion sense died in 2003. <laughs> and I only want to wear that stuff. Yeah. And like the stuff Hot Topic has now is great and it's attractive and super cute and whatever. But I don't like that I can't walk in there and like buy a velvet cape. <laughs> you know, like you can do that online, but... 
there was a time when you could walk into Hot Topic and there was velvet and lace aplenty. Yeah. And I miss that time. You could get a PVC car coat if you had $125. Yeah. You could buy, you know. So one thing that I really miss about Hot Topic is the shoes. Oh, yeah. You used to be able to go in and get like demonia boots that are like, you know, like big chunky heels. Exactly. Yep. That was like my favorite thing was going in there and finding the shoes. And that is something that you just don't get anymore. You can't walk into a store and just like, oh, I'm going to buy goth shoes. I'm going to buy these like tuck creepers, you know? Yeah. You just can't do that anymore. Yeah. You got to get them on the internet and you never know if they're like cheap or well made or not. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite pair of tuck black flats was from Hot Topic. Now you go in and there's no more shoes. There's a bunch of pops bunch yeah. of Funko Pops, a bunch of, like, T-shirts, which they always had, like, band shirts. Yeah. I mean, some of oh, my always. favorite my favorite band T-shirts were from there, but now they have a lot of, like, pop culture stuff, a lot of anime stuff now. A lot of Disney stuff, too. And the shoes, like, they do still have some shoes, but it's definitely not, like, you can't go in there and get thigh-high PVC no. lace-up lace boots, <laughs> no. you know? Which I don't even know where you, where you could go to get that anymore, but... Except for online. The internet, yeah. Rude. Yeah. that I do miss those times when you could go in and be like, oh, I'm going to get these shoes. They also used to have a lot of, like, dresses and stuff. Every dance we would go, oh, yeah. you know, to Hot Topic. That's and where play. I got my senior prom dress. Exactly. Yep. <clears throat> Cassie, my best friend in high school, she got her, I think we only went to junior prom. Or no, maybe it was like a homecoming dress, but it was this fantastic plaid, like trip dress with a bunch of straps and stuff all over it. It was fantastic and definitely not something that you could get there anymore. Oh, yeah. No, they have some of that on their website. But again, like it's just really hard with sizing and all of that to figure out. I have bought several things from their website that I've then had to alter. They're like too long. and Yeah. Yeah. Clothes are stupid. (laughs) Clothes are stupid. (laughs) Also, kind of awesome thing to mention. So a lot of people kind of criticize this, but when you watch the movie, you'll notice that Akasha, played by Aaliyah, her voice is is very strange throughout. She kind of sounds like she's speaking in multiple octaves at the same time. Some people said that it sounds like she's talking through a metal tube. It's because it's kind of echoey. Yeah. But it's because she hadn't done all the ADR before she died. So they requested her brother come in and he did the ADR. And so they like ran the tracks together of her voice and his voice together and then kind of made it that like strange, almost like tinny, metallic, tuvin throat singy kind of sound, which is very, I thought was really cool. And I think makes her sound very um, ethereal. Yeah. I like that effect, honestly. I thought it worked really, really well. You know, and if you're talking about an ancient being, you know, I know that there was some criticism similarly with the way that they did some of the modulation effects on um, the new Hellraiser. Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't know. We're talking about, like, these otherworldly beings. Like, I think it's kind of cool. Yeah. Like, we have the technology. Let's use it. Yeah. Like, Doug Bradley, like, they specifically cast him because of his voice and because it sounds, like, strange and ethereal. So I thought that it made perfect sense to make the new, you know, pinhead the exact same way. Exactly. And in this case, I think it's really cool. It makes it makes Akasha stand out. It makes us like really think about the fact that she's been asleep. Also, she's been asleep for thousands of years as a statue. It's going to clear out your throat. Yeah. It probably would play hell on your vocal cords. I would assume so. And I think there's also an aspect a little bit, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's like some telepathy that's also happening, if not explicitly while she's communicating definitely while you're drinking her blood yes so that's what i kind of likened it to is like not only is she speaking to you she's speaking in you yes and the thing that i think of course people didn't realize when they were criticizing this is that oh my god i'm gonna go into like total like vampire chronicles lore (laughs) akasha actually inhabits within her the spirit of amal who right. is the force of the first vampire. So that double speak is almost like 
you're hearing both Akasha and Amal together um, as the sort of the first vampire speaking. And especially in those scenes where she is speaking and she's talking about, you know, that vampires need to rule and we need to take back the earth and all of that. Of course, it's going to be Akasha and Amal together in synchronization. I think that really actually works even better with the character to have that vocal modulation like that. I had no complaints about it. I thought it sounded really cool. Yeah. And Aaliyah just looks absolutely amazing as Akasha. I literally cannot imagine Akasha as anyone else. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like Lestat, whatever. We we can, you know, we could we could have our uh, our dream casting whoever, but specifically Akasha. Like I I just literally can't see anybody else doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Being able to pull it off, moving like she does, sounding like she does, just amazing. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to touch on is let's talk about vampire legacy. Okay. Like in our world, not vampire legacy, like in their world. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We had this movie in 2002. Queen of the Damned came out in 2002. And then in between that time and 2008, we had all of the Twilight books came out. Right. And then we had our first Twilight movie in 2008, Mm -hmm. which was just called Twilight. That's the first one in the series. I wanted to talk about the fact that everybody shit on this movie so hard. But forget that that was only six years and there was so much vampire stuff that happened in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s that had to happen in order for Twilight to become a blockbuster movie, which if you have not watched that movie recently, please go back and watch it because it's so awful. Yeah. It's terrible. And I just have such a hard time with people who are like, Queen of the Damned sucked and then Twilight being like, no, Twilight is amazing. And all these girls, it just goes to show that 14-year-old me in 2004 watching Queen of the Damned and absolutely loving it and watching Twilight in 2008 and being like, oh, my God, this is so bad. We're not the same as the people in 2008 who were like, Twilight is amazing. The other really interesting thing to remember is Dead Until Dark, the first Southern Vampire Mysteries book came out in 2001. Okay. True Blood, the show, did not come out until 2008, also the same year as Twilight, which is two divergent sort of portrayals of vampires. But both of them have their roots both in Anne Rice books and in the two Anne Rice films, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. You can see elements of both. And it's really interesting to see, like, who chose to take what and who was influenced by what. Yeah. Because there are links to both, but especially like the Stuart Townsend's look. Oh, yeah. You know, because everybody was very highly critical of his look. Like, he's too young looking, he's too brooding looking, the hair in the face, etc. And it's so funny because I remember at the time kind of agreeing and be like, he doesn't really look like an air quotes vampire as we are used to. I think the funny thing as an aside is that people said the same thing about Lost Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And now it's the seminal film. But like when Lost Boys came out, everybody was like, that's not vampires. But yeah. It totally is now. It's canon. But I couldn't help but over and over again, like every time they got a tight shot on Stuart Townsend as we were watching this movie, think about Robert Pattinson and Twilight. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God. They yeah. mimicked that look so much and then advanced it. And that, this look of a vampire that was getting criticized in Queen of the Damned became the look of a vampire for a certain group of people and a certain generation of people from henceforth because Mm -hmm. of Twilight. Yeah. I really think that they borrowed heavily. I mean, the filtering, the fact that they filter Lestat and they make him look kind of like green-ish brown, you know, they do that with Edward, like exactly the same thing. That sort of like heavy shading around the eyes to kind of make them look sunk in. They do that with Edward. It's exactly the same. And like even something Juliet mentioned, one of the more campy kind of funny parts of Queen of the Damned is the flying, like the the fast motion. It's like they sound like cicadas and they kind of like (laughs) do this weird stop motion thing that makes them look like they're moving through space really fast when really they're actually moving kind of slow. It's really strange. Yeah. But they totally, like, do that in Twilight as well. Yep. And 
it's just so funny to me how people got really, really, really hard on this film for that. And then in Twilight, it's like, no, 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 this is exactly what vampires would look like. Everything's green and gray. And, and the vampires are like, just like real sullen and like, crappy all yeah. the time. And, and all of the vampire family in Twilight looks like that. Yep. Like the, uh, all the Cullens look like that. Exactly. So very, very strange to see. And of course, I'm thinking like to, the, the time between 2002 and 2008 is eons, you know? Oh, yeah. Especially in terms of pop culture and filmmaking. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, CGI was so much better. Makeup, uh, editing, soundtracks, so much different. So much had changed in just those six years. And I did a lot of growing up. So, of course, like, I'm looking at Twilight, like, you know, Queen of the Damned is so much better. I don't know why people are so upset, obsessed over Twilight. And just thinking about, like, all the stuff that they just blatantly ripped right off of the screen from Queen of the Damned and just making this, like, huge, uber successful popular movie. And I was thinking about, too, like, all of these little movies that came out ahead that also were dunked on, like... John Carpenter's Vampires. Mm -hmm. Dracula 2000. Dracula 2000, which I hope that we get to cover someday. Oh, we have to. Those movies, which got universally panned, but elements that are taken from each one of them, and, you know, making making a movie like Twilight, and that, I mean, Twilight was unequivocally a blockbuster in 2008. One of the most seen movies in 2008 and when it hit streaming during the pandemic one of the most watched movies ever on netflix i didn't realize that and the the whole series i mean the whole series was on (laughs) netflix most watched movies ever on netflix and that was ripped straight out of the queen of the damned and i bet you if you ask 10 twilight fans if they have ever seen queen of the damned i bet you eight of them would say no yeah i bet you're right i mean It's just fascinating to me that we slept on this movie so hard and then we were like, no, 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 Twilight is great. Twilight's great. It's also, I think, that not everybody, but a lot of people, because Queen of the Damned is based on Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles, which started in the 70s, and Twilight was a newer series. Weirdly, I don't find this with the Southern Vampire Mysteries at all. Twilight very specifically, like, was appealing to a younger audience who, for them, the books and the movies might have been their first, like, toe dip into horror. Yeah. I think the Charlene Harris stuff was definitely meant for more of an Anne Rice adjacent audience because I didn't see the same, like, response to her books or to True Blood. Like, I felt like people that got into True Blood were definitely like already either reading Anne Rice or into horror or whatever. But Twilight was like an awakening for a whole bunch of people, for better or worse. It was like their first delve into horror media or vampires or anything like that. That's fair. That's fair. I I was always like reading outside my my age. Oh, me, me too. <laughs> I think that's why I totally missed Twilight is yeah. I was just like so far beyond that. I mean, we shouldn't talk about what age I was when I read my first Andrews books. <laughs> Same. Can, can you retroactively call Child Protective Services on someone? That's fine. <laughs> I mean, not now. <laughs> I think the uh, I think the statute of limitations is is, is okay. expired. Yeah, yeah. We we both can vote. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I know. I feel that, but mine was the fault of the public library because. Oh, okay. You know. But yeah, no, I I feel that like so I actually was already working at the library when the Twilight movie came out uh-huh. and let me tell you the Twilight like insanity was just we already had had a lot of copies of the books. We had to rebuy them ahead of the movie because of the amount of requests that we were getting. Oh my gosh. And that like that's all four of the books and all four of the books I think or maybe maybe three and not the fourth one had come out. I can't remember what the timeline was, but it was nuts. And also, the Twilight to Fifty Shades pipeline ooh. is a whole. It, it's it's so, a whole thing. It's so different too than the like the interview to Queen of the Dam to True Blood pipeline. Yeah, was very different than the Twilight to Fifty Shades pipeline. Uh-huh. And they're almost mutually exclusive. 
So I have a theory about that. Okay. Because you told me something fairly recently that I did not know. Oh, yeah. So Stephanie Meyer is, was is, a Mormon, is, is Mormon. Mm-hmm. And so Twilight is apparently, uh, and I've like delved into this on TikTok a little bit since you told me this, like a whole like Mormon allegory. Yeah. But Anne Rice was raised Catholic. And so interview all of her books, even when she was like, I'm done with the church, they are absolutely steeped in Catholicism. Oh, yeah. And I think that's where those divergent pipelines go. And I don't know where Charlene Harris is, but like in terms of religious beliefs or upbringing or whatever, but I know where Alan Ball, who made True Blood, is coming from based on interviews he did and like Six Feet Under. Mm-hmm. And he is definitely more in the Anne Rice realm. That is hilarious. Yeah. Wow. That is so interesting. Yeah. Wow. I think it's a thing. Because I didn't know that about Twilight at all. Like, you you mentioned that just like offhand the other day. And I was like, wait, what? It's Stop an, the presses. I yeah, didn't know this. <laughs> it's in an essay. We're, we'll talk about this book a little bit later because I haven't been able to like fully read it yet. But there's an essay actually discussing Stephanie Meyer and being Mormon. And I, I also didn't know that. So when I read it, I was like, what? And then, of course, like my brain exploded because I'm like, oh, my God, of course she is. Yeah. Of course this is coming from a Church of Latter-day Saints vampire friendly depiction because mm-hmm. you have to be very careful, you know, as a practicing Mormon, how you're portraying these like beings that are quote unquote evil. They never talk about that, you know, and yeah. all, and Edward is always like constantly struggling with the fact that he has to drink blood. So he's like whipping himself, you know, with scorn. Yeah. So hilarious, though. Right? Like so fascinating. It it really is like where you're coming from religiously and kind of like the way that those those branches kind of splay out among all of the different vampire fandoms. So um I'm sure that we'll continue talking about this forever. As long as we're covering vampire media, we Which probably is gonna be forever. <laughs> yeah, that will never not be. Yeah. So next time we're gonna stay in the early two thousands. Yay. For a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yay. Yay, question mark? Yay, question mark. Um, We're going to do the thing that we've been talking about, but we've been too scared to do it. (laughs) We've been Uh, too scared. But but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, Yeah. We're going to tackle a Rob Zombie film. Which we have have feelings about. Yeah. But you know what? Perfect time for us to return to an early Rob Zombie movie and kind of look at it critically. Yeah. Because in the past, I've just been like, meh, blow it off. I'm excited to actually sit down and pay attention. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I feel like my experiences with Rob Zombie films have been really just based on gut reaction. I have some observations about them, but I've never, because of my gut reactions, bothered to look at them through a critical lens. So I'm excited to actually devote some time to doing that and to have a conversation about it because I think if nothing else like there is a lot to talk about there me too me too I agree thanks for listening to attack of the final girls find us online at attack of the you can support this podcast and hear bonus episodes at patreon.com slash attack of the final girls we're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.